We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Everybody, welcome back to Steve with Sons Fidel. I'm coming at you once again with the co-authors of the book, of their first book. Well, that's we'll just tease that down the road of economic personalism. Don Brohan and Michael. I was going to come up with a nickname like a boxer, Michael the USS Greeny or something like that. I can't. I couldn't think of anything. My brain quit. Uh, so anyway, welcome. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. So today we want to hit on. Something that a lot of people don't think much about is human dignity, the dignity of the human person. So uh, why is this even important? Well, you know, this morning I was looking at one of our um, most important books that for our uh, the Center for Economic and Social Justice, and that was a pamphlet written by one of our co-founders, uh, Father William Faree, who was a scholar in the social uh, justice concepts of Pope Pius XI. And he had a chapter, this is chapter three, that was called The Dignity of the Human Personality, Basis of a Theory of Justice. And he talks first about in the individual order. So that's how we relate to each other as human beings. And he said, for Pope Pius XI, the theory of justice uh, based squarely upon the dignity of the human personality. His position is that charity, um, and that he's talking about um, love towards each other, um, regulates our actions towards the human personality itself. That image of God, which is the object of love because it mirrors forth the divine perfections and in the supernatural order shares those perfections. The human personality, however, because it is a created personality, needs certain props for the realization of its dignity. These props or supports of human dignity, which include such things as property, relatives and friends, freedom and responsibility, are all the object of justice. To attack a human person in his personality itself, as by hatred, is a failure against charity, but to attack him by undermining the supports of his human dignity as by robbery is a failure against justice. And then he takes us to the next level of the social order. But I think it's important to see um, really the basis of um, the human person and in this, he's, he's talking about uh, uh, that we're created in the image of God, and we we are we share these uh, certain characteristics of God's. But we I always also, like the idea if people think that we were made in the image of likeness of King Kong that we're going to treat yeah. everybody a little differently. So right, it's, it's right exactly. It's not that we necessarily were, look a... like yeah, you know, look like whatever God looks like, it's it's really the inherent qualities of human beings that w we are blessed, I guess, to have that in our nature. Um, but it's then what really is important from the standpoint of justice and economic personalism is you start to get into questions of uh, property, our, our rights with regard to things we own in order to produce the things we need to consume. And so, um, I, I think this is when we talk about human dignity, we're looking at uh, really how we extend those supports for every human being to develop fully. Yeah, essentially, uh, you notice how I stopped saying basically? Uh, You're working on that for what, huh? <laughs> <laughs> essentially, the issue is 
what is a person and what does dignity even mean? A person is, in legal terms, something that has rights and signifies its status in the community or in society. So, but the kicker comes in with that only human beings among, you know, all the temporal things are natural persons. We are persons not because we have it in our nature, but because that is our nature. We have these rights that are part of human nature. They're not gifts. They're not grants. They're not created by somebody. They're not even self-created. They're what we are as persons. And dignity thus consists of respecting those rights. That's why Father Faris said that, you know, an offense against human dignity is an offense against justice. That's because rights necessarily involve the functioning of justice, which is the highest temporal virtue. I realize we're getting heavy duty philosophy here. I was thinking that, oh, look at Michael philosophizing already. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean already? I've been up for a couple hours already. I even I had my cocoa this morning. So, <laughs> so that whereas, you know, disrespecting, you know, the human being is an offense against charity, disrespecting that person is an offense against justice. Of course, in practice, it's often hard to distinguish between the two. And almost always an offense against charity is an offense against justice and vice versa, which simply underscores the fact that charity is not a replacement for justice. It fulfills and completes justice. It is almost impossible in practice to separate justice and charity. You, you can't have them pure as you do for analytical purposes. But at the same time, you can't use one to replace the other. Um, as more than one pope has pointed out, don't give in charity what is due in justice. And of course, don't try to replace justice with charity because charity fulfills and completes justice. It's not a replacement for it. I always get a kick when you're talking about that. It just made me think of Fowler DeSmith's book that uh, Tam publishes. It's entitled Fowler DeSmith. And he talks about all these guys, the Indians back in the days, that when they would set up their shops, people wouldn't even be at their shop, but people would come up, leave their money or whatever they were paying for it, take what they bought, and go back, and no one thought twice about it. They respected each other that much, and they trusted each other with honesty that much that they could have an economy that nobody thought they were going to steal from the other person. But yet we get in today, how many people trust anybody to keep their doors unlocked? Yeah, Yeah, and I I think you're... Oh, sorry. I was going to say, a large measure of that is that when you do have a smaller community and... It's run in a manner consistent with Say's law of markets, where every producer is a consumer and every consumer is a producer. You don't separate the ability to obtain goods and services from the ability to produce goods and services. So people have a greater appreciation of the fact that what this person is offering for sale, he had to work to get the same way I had to work to get what I have to offer for him to get it. we can understand what the other person had to go through to produce what it is that I want. And he can understand what I had to go through to produce what I'm offering him. Almost like you're saying, uh, act locally, think locally, get smaller community type, know your neighbor, become more. Up to a point. We are members of a larger global community. Right. And the fact that, as we've gotten larger, one of the things that's been done is to separate consumption and production. And a lot of this has to do with the way people have screwed up money. So that it really wouldn't matter uh, up to a point how big you get as long as you don't separate those things. That's what I was going to get to. So the size matters to a point, but you can also do that small idea on a bigger level, right? Right. And, yeah. and, I, and I'd like to point out that, uh, Steve, you brought up the idea of trust. And trust implies, you know, uh, respect, 
for each other and knowing that the other is not going to take advantage of you or harm you. And so if you don't have trust, you're not going to have a sound economy or a sound money system because money is so dependent on trust that, you know, what you're using to help you exchange and to have that confidence that the other person isn't cheating you is, you know, that is at the heart of having a society. And I think what happens is when you have a breakdown in that trust, you know, when you don't know what truth is anymore and you don't know what justice is because justice are, you know, involved with it are these obligations and responsibilities and their rules, you know, and this is a difference between um, justice and charity. There is a connection and Father Fari would say that charity is the soul or spirit of justice. What does that mean? Well, in one case, you're saying you're going to have defined rights and the other parties will have defined duties to respect your rights. Um, and so you have to set up systems so that you don't have to think out every single transaction or exchange, that you'll have a pattern that people have thought about and they may refine it, but it's basically they trust that it's going to be a fair system. Now, human creations such as systems and institutions are never perfect. And you also have human beings and some of them are more angels than others. And you'll, you may have to, in your system, your, where justice is dictating uh, the right, equal right of everyone to participate and get fair distributions or their rewards, you also know that you may have to fix them. And it's that spirit of charity, which is directed towards the good of the, the person that says, okay, I can see something in this way we're doing things is excluding this person here or this group of people. So we got to make an adjustment in our system. And so justice takes that into account, very looking for that balance of input and outtake. And so when Mike talks about on a economy scale, say his laws looking at all the things that are produced and hopefully all that is consumed, and you have to have the incomes in order to either goods that you trade for goods or you have another form which represents goods and that's money. So I, I think that getting back to the notion of human dignity, that we, we really can take whatever we're doing in society must start at that fundamental level. And I think that's really important to, in today's world because you know we talk about the rights of the community, the rights of the state, the right of a country. And really what we should be looking at is the human person, no matter where they are on this planet, they're a human person. And they have certain inherent rights, as Mike said, it's part of their human nature. And no you know, construct, no institution has the right to take away those inherent rights. So it is our duty as human beings to not only act for our own good, but this is where Father Free talks about the social order. And there's something special that happens when people come together and organize. They're able to do things that they could not do as isolated individuals. And one, one of the things they do is they construct institutions. And so he's looking at those as a conglomeration of customs, laws, traditions. So it has that aspect of, okay, this is recognized in our legal system and so there's enforcement. But there's also this notion of the people within interacting in the institution, they trust it. They're following those rules. It becomes part of the way they do things. If they don't, it's not really, that institution doesn't look, it isn't what it's supposed to be. And that's where you, you know, especially in, we were talking this morning about money as this, it's a juncture between the person and justice and property and those props and I, I love the way father free talks about the props of human dignity that the attack against justice is an attack against those things which help support the human being you know one is more direct if you do not act out of that spirit of uh caritas that that love for the other and the 
you know, the compassion and the desire that that person will flourish as you will flourish. If you don't have that spirit, then justice is, you know, it's, it's going to start getting warped into revenge and, you know, it, it won't have that balance which is directed at the good of the person. And not to get Michael, Michael on a great run, but I'll set him up a softball that are well, kind of like that economics as if people mattered. Oh please! Well, they, Actually, I, I have a I have a yeah, point to make which will support what Don said, and it's a graphic example of the importance of confidence, you know, trust in an economy, and of widespread ownership, and of organizing to change an institution. Uh, and most of the people who cite this fellow have no idea that that's what that's what he was doing because they misunderstand him. Back in 1854, uh, an English investment banker by the name of Charles Morrison published an essay on the relations between labor and capital. And in one of the chapters, he made the point that an economy runs on confidence. People have to have trust in what's going on because if they don't, no matter how many people you have willing to work, no matter how good the machinery is or the productive capacity, how great the demand, nothing is going to work because there's no confidence. There's no trust in the economy. Well, the main point and why he brought up the whole reason for trust is that in his opinion, the fact that workers in England did not own the factories that were producing the goods and services meant that the economy was out of balance, their human dignity was being offended, their rights were being violated. So what, in his opinion, the single greatest thing that was preventing worker ownership was the law of partnerships, you know, corporate law. Because in England at that time, there was no limited liability for corporations. And the, the law defined as ownership, participation in management, profit sharing, uh, any sort of thing that was more than just mere supplier of labor made you part owner. Even if you didn't have a piece of paper that said you were part owner, the law would hold you jointly and severally liable for all debts of that corporation. An honest, you know, a, a well-meaning employer couldn't share profits because that made his workers owners so that they could go to debtor's prison if the company got into trouble. So no ethical owner could help even you know, treat his workers decently. The law said he couldn't. So Charles Morrison helped get organized and made his case for limited liability to be added to the corporate law in England. And a year later, they added limited liability to the law of partnerships in Great Britain. Unfortunately, Morrison was a Malthusian in monetary matters, to multiply the M's there. And he believed that the only way to finance new capital formation and to turn workers into owners is to pay them enough so that they could save and purchase shares in the company, which of course isn't going to work for a, very, for a number of reasons because you can't pay people more without a corresponding increase in productivity when, you know, the worker productivity was actually going down as machinery advanced. But that's that's another whole topic. The bottom line here is that Morrison saw a problem. There was an offense against human dignity. Workers weren't allowed to own by the law. So he got organized and cha helped change the law. So that's, in, that, that's the idea of the act of social justice as Faree describes it which that uh, have, it's available, his pamphlet introduction to social justice is available for free on our website at cesj.org. And this is in the free downloads section. As is our book, Economic Personalism. Yeah, hey, that's the plug time, plug time. Get, get the two together. <laughs> Sorry, plug time. I, I thought we were waiting for later, but okay, go ahead now. We're sponsored by Economic Personalism. Uh, so how are persons different from things? Well, I I would first say you would look at what are the, what is the nature of the two things, and persons, as Mike said, there uh, you can define them legally as that which has rights, 
Now, you're able to create artificial persons, such as corporations, which are given the ability to borrow and repay and to uh, carry on. Persons in society. Yes. A social identity. Yes, a social identity. So corporations are able to transact. But really what they are, we have to understand that they're tools that human beings create. So you have, even though something may be given legal powers, you have to look at what was the source of those powers. And it wasn't that the corporations invented themselves. People had to do that and give them you know, certain abilities. So we're very careful about distinguishing between those things, which we would call things. Okay, so we would say if it's a human being, it's a person, a natural person. If it's not a human being, for especially for purposes of economics, it's a thing. And so um, when we talk about, for example, um, capital ownership as being a human right, we're looking at the ways that people can legitimately um, participate in producing goods and services that we need. And so we would say you can participate by those attributes and talents and skills you have as a person those are yours but you can also participate through the use of things Um, and things are what makes our processes of producing more and more efficient so when mike said you know as machinery was started getting introduced during the industrial revolution and obviously more and more now it's not so much um meaning that the human being's labor is necessarily less objectively, but in terms of the whole process, the proportion of human input from persons becomes less and less relative to the things such as now robotics and artificial intelligence and computer systems and the things that just do things faster than we can and, you know, at a greater scale. So I I think from an economic standpoint, this differentiation is important in that it actually opens up this new possibility of how we can participate as producers in the economy. But we have to go back to the ideas, where do the rights, where do these basic rights start? And it's in each of us as part of our nature. Yeah, I, I would add that, you know, from the, the personalist perspective um, and going by the Thomistic personalism of Pope St. John Paul II, which of course is what we base our uh, analysis in economic personalism on, it's, it, this is purely by coincidence because what we're talking about is binary economics, but the concept of personalism is binary with respect, there are persons and there are things. Now for expedience in society, we can create artificial persons, which are legal fictions that say, we will treat this thing as if it were a person, even though we know it's not. It's just a way of helping the institutions of society function in, in, a, in a rational manner or even a workable manner, because without the concept of artificial persons, society with its institutions could not function. As Father Faree pointed out in something that we call Discourses on Social Charity, but didn't really have a title since it was just from some notes from Father Faree that when he gave a talk back in 1966 or something, he gave a very interesting interpretation of Jesus's saying, when two or more are gathered in my name. And Father Faree gave the standard understanding of that. But then he also said, But think of it also in this way, when two people are organized into a group, there is the creation of of an institution, of of something that exists there because they are organized, so that there is a sort of incorporation, the creation of a person, as it were, completely artificial and delegated, and in legal terms, a legal fiction but it is real and it can be the directed object of virtue. 
and this is the whole distinction between individual virtue, which is directed toward persons, natural persons, and social virtue, which is directed toward institutions of the common good. Yeah, and I happened to find it, another passage out of uh, Introduction to Social Justice, which I think it, it clarifies in my mind um, how we are supposed to uh, behave and treat our institutions because there are there are, cre are creations by canceling Mr. Potato Potato Head right and Dr. Seuss. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what we. That is that is the dumbest thing because potatoes reproduce asexually by buddy. I mean, oh, oh. I wish you hadn't ruined it for me, Mike. <laughs> so, to get back to the serious matter at hand. This is from uh, the encyclical Divini Redemptoris. So he's quoting now uh, from the encyclical. In a further sense, it is society which affords the opportunities for the development of all the individual and social gifts bestowed on human nature. These natural gifts have a value surpassing the immediate interests of the moment. For in society, they reflect a divine perfection which would not be true were man to live alone. And then Father Faree comments on this. He says, society itself, therefore, as thus revealing further the perfection of God in his creatures is worthy of love, of a love directed not only towards the individuals who compose the society, but also towards their union with each other. This love is social charity. Moreover, as society thus makes available to man the further perfection of his potentialities of mirroring the divine perfection, it is also a support. Society is also a support for these perfections and hence is an object of the virtue of justice. Going back to that notion, it's the supports that uh, justice relates to. This justice called social justice which is directed towards the common good itself, requires that the society be so organized as to be in fact a vehicle for human perfection. So that means we got to look at all the institutions of human, uh, human society, you know, whether it's the state or it's money as an institution, education, and we have to ask, is this is this allowing for the development of every human person? You know, not an abstract person, but of every human person. Yeah, see, this raises the whole issue of the common good again. I mean, some people tend to think of the common good as general welfare alone. There is that aspect of it. But the common good is not either just a general concept that's indirect and vague, nor is it the aggregate of all the individual goods the way other people think. Nor is it, as some philosophers have made the mistake of saying, as well as academics, goods owned in common. You know, for, for instance, the state will own things simply because they're too big for people to pay for them or by themselves, or because they're too dangerous to own. Like, would you really want your neighbor to have a patent tank that he could just run, you know, run over your front yard with or run over your house with? I would love one if you have one, a spare one in the back. That's well, you, not your We're talking about your neighbors, Steve. Would you want your neighbor to have one of those? <laughs> I could be Michael's neighbor. <laughs> I guess, yeah, you could borrow it, ask your neighbor if you could take it I out. I the keys of the Panzer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They use a hand crank, you know. But <laughs> actually, the best system is not one that protects uh, me from you, but that protects you from me. I mean, I happen to know that I can keep a patent tank and I will not endanger anybody, but you don't know that. But the point is that the, the common good is not goods owned in common. It's not the, the aggregate of individual goods nor is it a vague concept of general welfare. It is something very specific and thus can be the object of, a, a directed object of virtue in and of itself. It's that vast network of institutions that we were talking about that, with it, that assist or within which 
human beings become more fully human, or in Aristotelian terms, more virtuous, which of course is the meaning and purpose of life. As political animals that are both individual and social, human beings ordinarily become more fully human within a social context, which means that common, the common good is the network of institutions within which we realize our full humanity. Remember, uh, Full Sheen had always he he start a, a program with a joke, and he remember that the uh, the dentist joke about asking what's his philosophy on life, <laughs> you know, talking about it. Should I be able to pay? Uh, should I? Are do you going to charge me, or can I steal this from you, etc.? He goes, I want to have the right mindset before he starts drilling in my teeth. Basically, if his philosophy's off. He doesn't consider me a human. Does he treat me well? Hmm. Well, that could also be dangerous with a dentist because uh, if you decide that his philosophy is that he wants to be paid before and you say be paid after, would you really want to trust him? <laughs> yeah, I'm killing the joke, but it's it's been years since I've seen it. But yeah, he, he, he basically brings that up about human dignity and uh, trusting somebody else with... Uh, you know, how are you going to treat somebody else? You want to know what their philosophy is before they start messing with you. So you could trust, as Don brought up, uh, the, the, the whole human dignity thing is all wrapped around in everything, right? I mean, virtue. Yeah. Well, if you if you look through the work of Fulton Sheen, and did we just lose Don? We just lost Don. We just messed up the whole uh, screen oh, right here. Oh, we have to retape the whole thing. No, we won't have to retape. She'll pop oh. back on. But I, I, I can... Uh, bringing the anecdote that I was about to mention, because she won't care. She's probably heard me say it before. Fulton Sheen's whole theme throughout his entire career was basically, was personalist. Mm -hmm. Sometimes economic personalist, but whether, I don't know if he actually came flat out and said that, but you can divide his whole career into, you know, the purely academic, which consists of two books. And which, of course, is in another book that I've written that hasn't been published yet. And then the second part, which was dealing with such serious subjects, you know, like philosophy, but in a more popular way. And Don has come back. So but I'm going to finish my anecdote anyway. Good, okay. The third part of his career, Fulton Sheen, uh, was, you know, the more spiritual matters, trying to focus on the, the individual person, but still within the framework of the whole common good structured in such a way as to you know assist and help not you know impede someone to become more fully human so basically fulton sheen's whole career was trying to combat the new things which a lot of people don't realize we brought up jp2's uh teaching on personalism what is the uh, gift of self that you bring up that he brings up so mike maybe you might want to Okay. This first. Uh, I, I was giving you the first chance that you had just come back in after. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I will. I will take it on myself. Okay. Uh, I'll fill in. A lot of people misconstrue the gift of self or the giving of self that John Paul II talked about as, you know, individual socialism or general socialism. We must be prepared to give up our rights. We must be prepared to give up all that we have and just give it to other people. This is, we're giving of ourselves by giving our things away. I, and I've seen it something like that. <clears throat> that is an incredibly crude misrepresentation of the very profound thought that Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, put into his personalist thought. The gift of self in personalist thought and you can read this in although sometimes he didn't he wouldn't have put it just this way i mean of course besides the speak fact that he wrote it in polish and i'm speaking in english but it, it's both individual and social and you will see this all through uh john paul ii's writings individually the gift of self of course it means you know being charitable and everything else but and carrying out all the other corporal works of mercy but it also means all and the spiritual works of mercy. But it primarily means you are be, being individually virtuous. You are becoming more fully human. You are giving to others by not harming them, 
treating them the right way, setting them an example by your own personal virtue, that there is nothing that you do that harms others in any way, shape, or form that, of course, that you intend to. Uh, and of course, you act personally virtuous. That's the gift of self at the individual level. At the social level, what it means is, and this is where uh, John Paul II's personalist thought begins to mesh and integrate into Pius XI's social doctrine. The gift of self, it, socially speaking, is to organize with others and start to work on the institutions of society to reform them to provide the proper environment within which you can, as an individual, become virtuous, thereby giving of yourself individually after having made it possible to give of yourself by giving of yourself socially. Yeah, and I think that another uh, point that I would make is this relates very much to the idea of charity in its fullest sense. Um, and when we act in charity or in love towards another, you give without any expectation of return. And so that distinguishes it also from justice, where if I give you this, I expect to get a fair exchange back. Okay, so there is an expectation of a fair return. Whereas in charity, there's you, you give fully without expecting the other person to do something back in exchange. So when we start talking about then the gift of self with regard to society, and, um, and beyond just individual to individual, which is that that is virtuous on the individual on the individual level, but on the social level, it's looking towards the good of the other other people um, and yourself. I mean, you, you you must be able to live virtuously yourself, but you look at these structures, the environment that everyone's living in. And this includes even more specifically the institutional environment, which we would, you could also call the common good, and make sure that each person does have equal access to this so they can develop fully. And this is something you do not with ex expectation of return. You do it out of that understanding that a, a good society brings out the best in each of us. And you want that for the others so that you see someone in desperation or suffering that you want them to be come out of that and to be whole again and to be able to become virtuous. So this is, um, a, this is a very important concept in when we speak of the economy, you know, there, there we're talking about fulfilling your, your most basic human needs, you know, survival, security, et cetera. But then when you start looking beyond that, the other needs of human beings, this is where you go, you rise through the levels that we, we each need. Uh, but then it, you look beyond that to the good of the society and the people within it, that society is this framework within which we all can interact. So I, I think this is really um, an important thing in terms of education is that we do have to learn the individual virtues. You know, this is, Father Free said, this the social justice does not negate the need for individual justice. It just helps it become more practical or easily done than if you're in a society which is, you know, forces you to, to lie or to cheat or to murder. You know, we don't want the things structured that way. So what do we do? We come together with other human beings to to restructure those parts of society that are, are have become barriers. Do you see a lot of the eugenist movements in the problems we see in economics, the, the businesses, the mindsets, the philosophies going on today? I know like with Davos yeah. in, in 74, they bring up uh, the great, great Thomas Malthus. So if people treat others as lower than them, again, that destroys human dignity, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
And I, you know, I think, and that was, you know, as Father Free was talking about hatred is a direct attack on the human personality. And so, yeah, that, that's exactly right. So he would also say in that the principle of society, it never, conflict has no part in the, or, the ordering principle of society. It is social justice, which is talking about the overall environment and context that we all live in in order to become more virtuous and more fully human. So, you know, I, I think that's an important point you just made. Yeah, and it should be noted that conflict and competition are not the same thing. They can be, but as a number of the popes have commented, trying to correct the impression that competition is evil. No, competition is good as long as it is kept within bounds and is not unjust or unfair. It is a normal human feeling to say, oh, I can do that better than you. Mm -hmm. Let's see, or hey, let's see which one of us is better at this without tripping the other person or doing something else. Yeah, it's not the dog eat dog, it's, hey, it, this makes iron strengthens iron. I, I make you better, you make me better, and we keep yeah. putting a better product or a better system out that rather than, hey, I want you destroyed and everybody out on the streets living off, you know, un, basically homeless. And it, I'm going to yeah. laugh about it afterwards saying, I did it. You know, that's a very good point, Steve, is that in looking at uh, competition or the free market system, the popes were not saying that those were evil. They were just saying they should not be the end purpose of human existence. The purpose is to become more, for each of us to become more fully human. It's things like competition and free markets, which can help in that process. But it's, it's like the problem we would see with capitalism and we're looking at the word, the suffix ism means a value system. And you know what you're gearing all your actions and your thoughts towards is in this case, the accumulation of capital. Now there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we would say in economic personalism, it becomes more and more necessary for human beings to live in this world is to own things that will produce an income for them and things that will do uh, create more than human beings can and where human beings you know they would just be ground into the dirt out of exhaustion doing where you get a, a tractor or you get a, a robot and you know people don't have to suffer and toil to live they should not have to so you know i i think that um we we have to keep what the ends and the means are and as long as we understand things as intermediate you know, ends or fundamental means to pursue, you know, to uh, human dignity, you know, the, the enhancement of human dignity, then we put things in the proper place. Property in itself is not an ultimate end or, or purpose in life. Accumulating capital is not an ultimate end or purpose in life. Competing, you know, free competition is also not an end and per the ultimate end in human life. But they are fundamental means. If you take them away, you take away human freedom. And even human freedom in itself is not the ultimate end in human life either. Because you know you could use freedom in a way that harms other people. Or you could use it that it, it only is interested in helping yourself, but it doesn't have an eye to how this affects other people in society. So being able to distinguish between ends and means is really, it's very important that something can be an absolutely just mean or, or means, but it, when it becomes this, the end, the purpose, then, it, then there's a problem because you're disregarding all these other things that are important to human life and other people as well and society. Yeah, it, it, it's the way you can, you know, ameliorate the meaning and purpose of life, uh, uh, you know, which is to become more fully human. Yeah. Now, Ayn Rand went one way with that. I become more fully human by being more human than the rest of you and basically treating everybody else like dirt because I am the most fully human thing there is. 
or maybe I'm a member of the Bloomsbury group and all the rest of you are just little embryos or whatever. Uh, John Paul II went a different way. How do I become more fully human? Well, by giving of myself to other people and to society at large, to the common good, by being virtuous, by not harming others. This all comes together. You become more fully human by helping other people become more fully human at the same time, not by grabbing it all yourself. We can cooperate and compete at the same time. We don't have to be in conflict. So what are some practical examples that people can do today to uh, increase human dignity, I guess, in the business world uh, or just, just out on the street? Well, basically out on the street, you said basically just laws. Uh, this is basic. This is why uh, Aristotle called the virtue, the general virtue that makes society better, legal justice. It's not because it is confined to the legal system. It's because in general, the way we benefit society is for rulers to pass just and good laws and for people to obey them. This has a good effect on society. Of course, then you get people who pass bad laws and then people who assume that because a law has been passed, it must be good because the state is God and God is the state. But that's not quite the way it works. The, uh, the best example, no, that's individually out on the street. Just be a decent person is, is, the, is the ordinary way to do it. Now in business, it's rather difficult because, as we pointed out a number of times already today, the monetary system screwed up. It is almost impossible for ordinary people to put themselves in the position of being able to be both producers and consumers in a way that brings everything into balance so that they can become more fully human by being productive members of society and full members of society. I mean, Aristotle considered nominally free people who didn't own anything, naturals, uh, masterless slaves. That's how bad it was. One of the most remarkable things Jesus did in his earthly ministry was to treat propertyless workers as if they were real human beings, the same as everybody else. I mean, today we don't recognize this because it just seems so natural that Jesus treated everybody the same. Mm -hmm. But back then it was revolutionary to say, oh, you mean this poor person who is not a slave and thus shares his master's life and he's not a man who owns property, you mean he's just as good as I am? That's incredible. Perish the thought. Yeah. Now, in U.S. law at this time, there are some things you can do. They're not ideal. Uh, the employee stock ownership plan uh, most of them are basically put into place as retirement plans or as an employee benefit. They do have good results. Uh, I think the National Center for Employee Ownership in Oakland, California has pointed out that companies that are 100% worker owned, have profit sharing and participatory management are around 1.5 times more profitable than otherwise comparable companies. So it does have a good effect. But participants in an ESOP, and you have to work for a corporation that has an ESOP to be able to participate in this, they're not real owners. They're what the law calls beneficial owners. Unless the, the plan document says they have the full rights of ownership, they don't have the full rights of ownership. Now, we have designed something in our, in our for-profit group I won't, I won't, I won't put a free plug for it, <laughs> but we call it the, the, the value-based subchapter S ESOP, which is a really clumsy way of saying that under current law, it's the best way we know of how to structure a business that will deliver justice to the workers and, you know, carry out this whole, you know, respect human dignity. The whole problem, of course, is that's, that's only for workers and it's only for 
private sector workers who work for a corporation that happens to have these structures in place. There's nothing there that says that the person who can't work or the person who say works for the government or for a nonprofit or something, for those, we have something that is analogous to what Abraham Lincoln tried to do with you know the vast land holdings of the federal government back in 1862, the, the Land Homestead Act. Anybody who was age 21 and was a citizen or had the declared intention of becoming one could get 160 acres of land, work it for five years and get legal title. Well, the problem with that is that not everybody can be a farmer and the amount of land is certainly limited. So what we propose is something we call the Economic Democracy Act, whereby ordinary people would be empowered to be able to purchase not existing wealth necessarily, but the new additional wealth that comes into being every year. So you don't want to deprive existing owners of anything. But new capital is formed every year. Who's going to own that? Well, it's going to be owned by whoever finances it. And we have proposed certain monetary reforms that would allow anyone with a feasible project to be able to have the money created to finance the project and then become an owner as the financing was repaid out of the profits of, of the project itself. Yeah. So. Uh, to get back to your question, what can be done in a practical way in business? As Mike mentioned, there is a vehicle that can, um, that exists. It is beneficial. It has certain abilities in terms of finance that no other method of finance um, has. Um, it is, you, you can design it to be as just as you can possibly conceive in terms of opening up equal uh, opportunities to every person, no matter if they're a manager or they're, you know, the janitor um, in terms of uh, capital ownership and recognizing their relative uh, labor values in the marketplace. So they, they really can, they're very flexible. But as Mike said, that this is really dealing with a, a fairly small segment of the workforce. So we need to think universally, and this will be good for business, because if this is the way to think, if we can include more people in to the processes of finance so that more and more people become owners as we're figuring out a way to purchase these new, you know, uh, uh, capital tools, then what you do system-wide, and this Mike was talking about keeping the economy in balance between what's produced and what's consumed, you want to simultaneously make people more productive through their ownership of things, because then you'll start to reduce all these huge swings that go on in the economy. You'll have a gradual and more sustainable way for the economy to grow in such ways that every person is becoming both a producer through their capital ownership and a consumer. They will now have this additional source of income. So if businesses can start thinking, you know, what would this mean to, uh, to, to us as a business if we had more customers with money, you know? And then what would this mean to us as a business if you had, well, to start with the, the people who are working in the company that they're now thinking like owners versus just, you know, give me my paycheck and I'm out of here. What would it mean to society where you had people, you know, being able to get the kind of, you know, quality education and afford quality medicine, you know, it's, so it's starts with, why don't we try thinking about the possibilities in a different way? that you can think, okay, it's gonna only be the smartest and the most talented or those who were fortunate to be born into a rich family, you know, they will have the, the opportunities to become owners of these really advanced tools that they're becoming more and more powerful all the time. If we say that, okay, then you're gonna have power 
in a few hands. Or we say there's another possibility to make things fair for everyone. We're going to level everything. Okay, we're going to say every no one can have more than anyone else. So we're going to have to make sure that we have the government and the law set up to make sure no one, no individual can own more than a certain amount. Well, you know that things there's always ways that uh, people in the government, you know, are they're not angels, and so you're going to see corruption as they as a few people in the public sector gain more power. So. Then if you start thinking along the lines of personalism and economic personalism, then you see a new range of possibilities. And I think for those who are looking beyond their, their own individual good, and they see that their own individual good is tied up in the good of other people, then you, you now can say, let's look at these various institutions that we deal with every day. And money is going to be a critical one. Money is going to influence who owns in the future. Money is going to dictate who is going to have economic power. And if we do believe that concentrated power is inevitably going to bring about corruption, but we also know that we need power in order, order to function, then how do we figure out how to structure our laws and institutions so they just automatically spread out opportunity equally and they ensure that power becomes deconcentrated. And then you can start saying, because it's not going to be hard to see, okay, a faulty institution. And it might be in, for example, the election processes may need to be fixed so that they don't you know, they can't be tampered with as easily or that people are able to know that the system is operating fairly. You know, that's something, but starting with money, the money system that we can redesign it without taking away the property of anyone who now has, has ownership. We just are now incrementally building more people in society into that now that ownership club. Um, so then once you have a plan and, you know, we have been thinking about this for many decades, uh, you know, uh, and we, as Mike mentioned, we have um, this uh, strategy. It's a, um, a package of legislation like it's like Lincoln's Homestead Act and um, it's patterned after that. But now for the modern uh, high tech economy, it's called the Economic Democracy Act. Um, we have a resolution that we would like people to help us get to their representatives. It could be at a city council level, a state legislation, legislator, legislature level, or U.S. Congress and the White House. But it's it, this process of re-educating ourselves as to there is another way to look at these problems and how to solve them. And that's starts with the human person, that if we look at all aspects of our life and ask, how's this affecting me, my family, my community, you know, others in the community, others in the country, others just around the world. Then, you know, that's, then how do we come together to change these things? So that's sort of the things, the practical things that have to be done is be aware of it, understand it, diagnose the problem more, you know, more precisely and come up with solutions that are going to open up equal access and equal opportunity to every person. All right, where can they have people get your book at? Oh, well, okay, Mike, you wanna? I was gonna say, uh, the free plug time. You can get a free copy of it on the CESJ website, www.cesj.org. Uh, slash, yeah. yeah, you can say slash economic dash personalism dash book and that will get you to yeah to get a if you want a free uh pdf download but so where you can purchase one also as well which is really nice too and if you purchase a copy um please uh, leave a review it. <laughs> yeah review it on amazon.com um and uh please feel free to get in touch with us if you have any questions about it there's a lot of information on the CESJ website, but sometimes you may have a question that's most easily answered by a human being. So we are here, um, get in touch with us. And I should mention that the book 
the, the text is probably about 130 pages. It's not an intimidating read. I mean, with, with a title like Economic Personalism and, you know, addressing what they've come to call the dismal science, thanks to Thomas Malthus, whom we have disparaged prior on this program, uh, you'd expect something maybe this thick, volume one, and then going on for page after page. No, it, it's a very readable book. Uh, and I say, oh, even if in I'm... our opinion, <laughs> awesome, very good. Well, next we would talk about virtues, I think. And uh, now, nah, appreciate it, Michael, Don, as always. Appreciate the opportunity again, Steve. Thank you so much for having us on. A anytime, no problem. See you guys next week. Okay, take care. <laughs>